0: Welcome to Educate Caring Activists Teachers for Equity, the podcast about all things education and equity. I'm Jennifer Martin from the University of Illinois at Springfield. This is Season 3, Episode 2, Altercate. Wendy J. Murphy, JD, teaches sexual violence and law reform at New England Law Boston, where she also co directs the Women's and Children's Advocacy Project. WCAP, under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. WCAP runs the Judicial Language Project, which entails students using sociolinguistic research to critique the language used in law and society to describe violence against women and children. WCAP also writes amicus briefs and engages in public interest litigation to advance the rights of women and children. In addition, WCAP runs the JD PhD project, which brings together a law student and a PhD student who work across disciplines to critique the methodological reliability of scientific research to either enhance or prevent its admissibility in legal proceedings, hence its impact on law, Policy and human behavior. On January 7, 2020, WCAP filed a federal lawsuit in the United States District Court for the District of Massachusetts to ensure validation of the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA. In the aftermath of the ratification by Virginia as the 38th and last state needed to add the ERA as the 28th Amendment, to the United States Constitution. Wendy prosecuted child abuse and sex crimes cases for several years, during which time she observed systematic discrimination and injustices against victimized women and children, which, in 1992, led her to form the first legal organization in the nation to provide pro bono legal services to victims of violence involved in the criminal justice system. Wendy has published numerous scholarly articles, including a landmark piece explaining the legal relationship between sexual assault on campus and Title IX. Dubbed the goddaughter of Title IX by the godmother of Title IX, Dr. Bernice Sandler, Wendy's impact litigation in the area of campus sexual assault beginning in the early 1990s, includes groundbreaking victories against Harvard College in 2002 and Harvard Law School and Princeton University in 2010. These cases led to widespread awareness and reforms and produced the well-known April 2011 Dear Colleague Letter. Wendy regularly provides legal analysis for network and cable news programs. Her first book, And Justice for Some, was published by Penguin Sentinel in 2007 and re-released in paperback in 2013. Educate is honored to welcome attorney Wendy J. Murphy to the studio today. Welcome, Wendy.
1: So good to be with you.
0: Thank you. So I will just share with our audience that recently Wendy reached out to me. Wendy and I go back
1: maybe a, a decade or so uh,
0: around uh, sexual harassments. I think more. I think more,
1: but really? um, at least
0: yeah, maybe like fifteen years around uh, sexual harassment, research, and advocacy. And we met through a mutual friend. So recently, Wendy reached out to me and asked me if I would uh, give her paper a read. And I was so intrigued by your paper, Wendy. I thought we have to get Wendy on this podcast because the paper, and I'm gonna have you talk about it and summarize it, but the paper discusses the history and the current status of the Equal Rights Amendment and why uh, women still do not have the same constitutional protections as men. And I feel like a lot of people don't know anything about this, Wendy. Can you tell us how you started researching the ERA and how this
1: paper came to be? Yeah, sure. Jennifer, um, it's one of those stories that started organically and and turned into, uh, for me anyway, a personally um, just high-energy activist movement, personal, one-on-one person movement. (laughs) Uh, And it really began in the beginning of my career as a prosecutor of crimes against women, sex crimes in particular, I found myself uh, as a new lawyer in front of judges who were doing things in the nature of court orders and so forth to women uh, and rape victims in particular that that he or she would not do to another type of crime victim. And like, for example, ordering a victim to turn over uh, a list of all of the medical and mental health care providers she's ever been to in her life and all of her school records and all all of her employment records and things like that. And I noticed that this didn't seem fair or right, that only rape victims were being asked to turn this material over, where robbery victims weren't, eyewitnesses to murders weren't. And I did I didn't understand it. So I would say, Your Honor, I don't understand why you're only ordering these things to be rele- to, to be disclosed when the victim is a woman or a rape victim. Uh, that doesn't make any sense to me. And judges would roll their eyes and not really engage, but just kind of roll their eyes at me and, and move on. And then one judge, one day, after I was doing this kind of protesting, if you will, uh, as the government, as, a, as, a, as an, a representative of the government in my role as a prosecutor, uh, the judge who I really liked, uh, but he pulled his glasses down off of his nose when I complained yet again that he was doing something to women that he wasn't doing to other types of crime victims. And he said, "Miss Murphy, you are the government. Your job is to state the law, not complain about it. If you want to change the law, you have to get a different job. And that really hit me. I remember, it's like one of those things where you know exactly where you were and what room you were in and who else was there and what you were wearing when something really important happens. And I remember that moment very clearly because number one, I said, well, then I needed to get a different job. I had been doing that job for about five years at that time. And I also remember thinking, well, if I'm not supposed to object to this blatant form of sex discrimination in the name of justice, who's supposed to object? Uh, Clearly, it wasn't uh, the defense attorney's job. They weren't going to object. They loved being able to take advantage of this special form of discrimination that was being posed on women. And uh, the the judge wasn't doing anything about it. So if I wasn't supposed to object, who's supposed to object when the process, the system itself, was discriminating in this really important way that was. undermining women's access to justice, and that bothered me. It bothered me to realize that this judge was basically saying to me that when harmful things happen to women in their capacities as victims in the criminal justice system, that the unfair things that happened to them um, were not objectionable, that that the, the system didn't want to hear about it, and yet I also knew that There was this thing called the Equal Protection Clause, which under the 14th Amendment is supposed to protect all persons equally and make sure that the laws work equally to protect them as they do for others. So I saw this inherently to me as as a violation of the 14th Amendment. And that is what inspired me to start doing the work that I do now and have been doing for about 30 years. Because when I left the DA's office intentionally to start doing what that judge told me to do, which was to get a different job if I wanted to be. Uh, uh, an an agent of change, if I wanted to fix things that I saw that were wrong in the system, I had to get a different job. So I did. And right away, I started doing things that were designed simply and exclusively to bring these injustices to light. So I would file documents in criminal cases, objecting to what was happening to women on the grounds that it violated their constitutional rights, whether it was rights to privacy, rights to medical privacy, uh, rights under the Fourth Amendment, rights um, to confidentiality and therapy, and then of course, right to rights to due process and equal protection, in other words, rights to be treated the same as other people and not worse, not subjected to worse rules just because you were a woman. And um, what I found, I think continued to inspire me because it was really like a classic peeling of the onion. Uh, I'd go in and you know file something, then I thought, well, once the once the judge realizes that I'm filing this and and calling attention to this systemic injustice, the court will say, "Thank you very much. We didn't realize this was happening. Let us fix that for you." And that's not quite what happened. Um, what I realized was there was kind of open support for this second class treatment of women, and it didn't matter. It didn't seem to matter that I was pointing out that this was only happening to women and that this was a form of government mandated discrimination and doesn't anybody have a problem with this? I would feel like I was screaming uh, into thin air and no one was around to hear me because it didn't matter what kind of case I brought and how I showed that this was only happening to women and rape victims in particular. No one seemed bothered by that and that bothered me extra. So over the years, I just started to, to do increasingly more sophisticated litigation around mounting challenges. And in time, um, that morphed into uh, being one of the people directly involved in trying to validate the Equal Rights Amendment uh, once that became um, a a center point, if you will, in in feminist activism in in the past few years. And for those of of your listeners who don't know, uh, the Equal Rights Amendment, which, as you said, very few people even know what it is. If you say ERA, most people think it's earned run average or you know some other acronym. Uh, some older women tend to know instantly what it means. But the Equal Rights Amendment says equality of rights shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. That's all. It's really this very simple statement saying you can't treat women as second class citizens. The reason the ERA was originally crafted, which by the way, goes back to 1923, is because in 1868, when the 14th Amendment was adopted, which was one of the civil rights amendments, one of the um, amendments meant to bring our nation back together after the Civil War and the abolition of slavery, the 14th Amendment established due process and equal protection. Those were, I mean, it did more things uh, including giving White men the right to vote and nobody else. But aside from that, it also purported to give equal protection rights to all persons. Um, And of course, you know, women, uh, even at that time, were fighting for rights and um, recognition uh, because our Constitution was originally written in a way that was. Um, not just not dismissive of women, not disrespectful of women, it just ignored them completely. So we were not even in the original constitution. No one thought of women as persons, uh, in part because we uh, started our country uh, kind of mimicking what had been done in other countries. And the sense that women were owned by men was very well. In, uh, Accepted in other parts of the world. So when when we came, when when we began our country and women came here, um, there was an understanding. Almost everybody accepted this notion that women had no status as persons because they were property. They were um, property of their usually their husbands, uh, and, and, and and or their fathers. And for single women who never got married, they were just invisible and ignored. But so the Constitution completely. Uh, ignores women in its original iteration, and then when the, by the time the Bill of Rights was adopted, and then the later amendments, the so-called reconstruction amendments, which were the 13th, 14th, and 15th, women were rising up at that time. Uh, they were doing a lot of anti-slavery work as well, so they were certainly um, well known uh, in terms of uh, the government understanding that they were fighting for basic rights, and they fully expected to be protected by those amendments, even though those amendments were Um, to some extent, really oriented around um, making sure that Black people, slaves in particular, felt fully welcome into the Union once the war was over. Uh, Of course, a lot of people at that time said, you know, if you don't put stuff in these amendments that deals directly with the invisibility of women in the existing Constitution, uh, then, then you're not really liberating Black people at all. You're liberating Black men, only Black men. Um, and there was an incredible um, uh, uh, emergence of tension between Black people in general and all women, and then to some extent Black men and Black women and Black men and white women. So there were all these um, combatants because it's like it, it was like a, um, uh, a battle began around those amendments. Who's going to be protected? Well, let's make sure we're protected, and we don't want to waste our ask, if you will, to make sure that Black men are protected. We're not going to also ask that Black women be protected because we don't want to lose. We we want to, you know, we want to ensure rights for Black men, uh, and we don't want to water down our political ask by including women of any color. So, there, so that so that that schism, that fight between cl- classes of people, if you will, kind of began with. The Reconstruction Amendments and uh, women were furious because women and Black people, um, it, both freed Blacks in the North and even um, you know those who were rising up in the South, there was this unity for the most part between women of all colors and and Black slaves and freed Black people in the North. There was this unity of purpose that we were going to fight together. That this was about oppression. Women and Black people kind of suffered the same ways, of course. That doesn't. I'm not saying that slavery is the same as the kind of suffering women endured, but they suffered legally in the same ways, in that they were all invisible, or they had no personhood, or if they had some kind of personhood, it was limited, and the rights they had were less than white men. So there was that common purpose, if you will, because there was a commonality of oppression. But after those amendments, um, the the unity was divided. And of course, you know, with a long view now, I think most of us look back and say, well, yeah, that was the point, right? Let's divide these people up before they have too much power. Divide and conquer, divide and conquer. And it, it's you know a tried and true strat- strategy that goes back thousands of years when oppressed people rise up, divide and conquer is the name of the game. And it certainly worked very effectively. In fact, um, as I write in my paper, uh, the, the unity, began to break down when the 13th Amendment was was first being debated because the 13th Amendment, as people may know, is the, the, the amendment that abolished slavery and that um, covered all slaves, men and women. So it was sex neutral. But when the 14th Amendment came along and there was this expectation that we'd have that unity again, in terms of the language of the 14th Amendment being just as concerned about especially Black women, but certainly all women, uh, we expected the 14th Amendment to um, be similarly global in its scope, and uh, that was not what happened. The 14th Amendment, although uh, the section that grants equal protection of the laws uh, speaks to that right being given to persons, which you would think would cover women, uh, the United States Supreme Court was very clear in the immediate aftermath of the adoption of the, 18th, of the 14th Amendment in, the late, in 1868 that women were not persons. They were not meant to be protected by that guarantee of equal protection of the laws. They were, they were just not persons. And women were furious. And they found out they were non-persons uh, only after they tried to sue under the 14th amendment after it was adopted in 1868. And when they filed those lawsuits, there were a couple of really interesting women. One passed the bar and was denied the right to practice law because under her state's law, um, uh, women weren't allowed to be lawyers. So she sued under the under the 14th amendment and the court did not grant her um, the remedy she requested which was to, to basically overturned the state law that forbade her to be a lawyer, the court said, no, you don't have a constitutional right to the profession of your choosing. And there was language in that decision that also said, women's destiny is to be wives and mothers and you know, none of this silliness about being lawyers. Uh, so, we, so women lost a couple of key cases after the 14th Amendment. Uh, but in the interim, the 15th Amendment was adopted, which um, was very, very important because it granted the right to vote. And it did that because the 14th Amendment, and, and I'll tell you who it granted it to in one second, but first let me explain that the 14th Amendment in, a, in one of the later sections, it's, it's kind of a long amendment, not that long, but it has many sections. And one of the sections explicitly protects the right to vote only for white men. So Black men were furious. Black men and Black women and all women were furious that only White men got the right to vote in the 14th Amendment. So there was a push for the 15th Amendment and the expectation was that the 15th Amendment would capture Black women and all women. So, when the 15th Amendment was adopted, all women were livid because it only granted the right to vote to Black men. And one of the people we celebrate as um, an, a, a wonderful advocate both for uh, abolition but also for women's rights, um, Frederick Douglass, actually supported only giving the right to vote to Black men. That was not his original view in 1848 he was one of the speakers at the seneca falls convention uh, supportive of women's full equality and absolutely giving women the right to vote so he was an early supporter but you know politics makes people do crazy things i mean if you want to win the right to vote but the politicians are saying we'll only give it to you if you back down on asking for it on behalf of women too then you know that's what they did it was uh Run of the mill politics that that black men didn't want to lose the right to vote because they were they were being told to abandon their support for for women having the vote as well. So the 15th Amendment came along and just in your face discrimination. It was so uh, bold. As I said, the 14th Amendment used the word persons, so it wasn't as black and white rude to women. We only found out we weren't persons when we tried to go to court and enforce it. This was just in your face. We don't want women voting. And of course, you know, we all know what happened after that. Right away, women proposed uh, a suffrage amendment, which did not um, become supported by Congress until 1920. I think it was 1919. And then, as you all probably know, um, it was ratified by the requisite number of states in uh, 1920. And so we celebrated our 100th anniversary of women having the right to vote. Um, Just last year. What's interesting, though, is the minute we won the right to vote, the minute that last state ratified and we got the 19th Amendment adopted, which gave women suffrage and they became enfranchised for the first time as as persons. I mean, it really was the first time we had any status in the law at all. we immediately then filed an amendment to fix the 14th Amendment's exclusion of women under the Equal Protection Clause. So we knew we needed the right to vote and then we needed equal protection of the laws because no laws work to protect women at all. And I don't mean just protection against violence. I mean, protecting all of your basic rights, whatever rights you might have. If you don't have them rooted in the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, then when, then when your rights are denied and you go to court to complain about it, uh, you lose. You lose because the and this is what happened to me all the time with judges. When I would say, you can't treat women differently, and they rolled their eyes, what they were really saying was, you don't have equal protection rights. Ms. Murphy, you're complaining about the second class treatment of women. Well, guess what? It's constitutional for me to treat women differently, so what's your problem? And in the beginning of my career, I didn't put those two dots together. It was really only once I started to see the big picture and do a little bit more research and kind of, I don't know, learn the hard way why these seemingly irrational things were happening to women in court. It was because it was constitutionally allowed. It was the constitutional norm to not treat women equally. The important thing for people to remember about the ERA is it, was, it wasn't it was accepted as a fix to the 14th Amendment. It wasn't accepted by Congress as a necessary fix until 1972, even though it was written by Alice Paul and others back in the early 1920s, in 1923, to be precise, it never was embraced by Congress until 1972. In 1972, uh, really because of the civil rights era, and I don't want to call it the women's rights era, because why would I separate women's fight for rights from the fight for civil rights? Women's rights aren't different from civil rights. So when we talk about the civil rights era, we need to think about women as part of that definition. They are under that umbrella. They're not under a different umbrella. They're under the civil rights umbrella. And when they were fighting for civil rights, they were also fighting to fix the 14th Amendment by having the ERA passed by Congress and then sent to the states for ratification. So the 14th Amendment could be fixed by explicitly giving women full equality uh, and adding this as a new amendment to the constitution to make clear that you know all that bad stuff they did by excluding women from the 14th Amendment is now fixed. Women are fully equal. There can be no more second-class treatment of women by the government anywhere, period, end of discussion. That's really what the ERA was designed to do. And it was filed with Congress around the same time, within literally months of the time that um, Title IX was passed. What I mean to say is Congress passed the ERA and sent it to the states for ratification within months of Title IX being passed by Congress. And the reason that's important is, again, Title IX is a civil rights law. And when women were fighting for civil rights, they said, we want equality. But while they were fighting, while they were waiting for the states to ratify the ERA after it passed Congress, they were given this uh, little space, if you will, education as a place where they would have equality um, while waiting for the ERA to become law by the state's uh, ratification process. So they got what I call you know, uh, a little baby ERA that applied only to education. And then the hope and expectation was once, the ERA was ratified uh, by the states, by the necessary number of states, uh, it would be less important that we had Title IX because the ERA is kind of a super um, Title IX that applies to lots of places, not just education. Right, right. And- let me
0: let me ask yeah. you a question. Yeah. And I thank you for this extraordinary historical context. Our listeners are going to gain a, a lot from, your, from this information. So recently, like, I don't know, maybe in the past decade, prior to his death, obviously, Justice Scalia argued that women are not fully protected under the Constitution. Um, can you give us a little bit more background about Alice Paul and the ERA and what was happening between 1923
1: and 1972? Yeah. Um, and by the way, Justice Scalia uh, was right. I mean, he took a lot of flack for that, but I was one of the people celebrating because he actually said out loud what all of us knew, what many of us knew, but were having trouble getting people to understand or believe. And and he said it out loud, which was great. I mean, I love to quote him to just prove to people, listen, it's not me saying women aren't equal. It's Justice Scalia when he was on the Supreme Court. So... um, again, just to harken back to when the 14th Amendment was enacted and it excluded women from equal protection of the laws, which is to say all laws, right? So no laws are guaranteed to be enforced equally on behalf of women, because we don't have the roots of women's rights um, being tethered to equal protection guarantees. We just didn't have it. So you might even pass a law, um, you know, that says women should have equal pay well, when you go to court to enforce it because you say I'm not getting equal pay, the law says I'm entitled to equal pay, but I'm not getting equal pay, the judge is allowed to say and does say, well, but, but I don't have to construe the word equal to mean equal because you don't have a guarantee of truly equal enforcement, equal meaning, equal impact. That comes with the 14th Amendment. You're not in the 14th Amendment and we don't have the ERA. So I can construe the word equal under an equal pay statute to mean less than equal. And that's what happens. That's what's been happening. For the history of every bit of lawmaking that affects women's rights, that's how the law works. And it's something that's harder to see than it used to be um, because we have so many laws now that, that look okay Right? We used to have laws that said men can do this, but not women. We don't really have laws like that anymore. So it's shielded by the black and white nature of rules. And then it becomes very clear that laws don't have the meaning they appear to have when you go to seek enforcement. So in 1923, when Alice Paul and others wrote the ERA and submitted it to Congress, what they were saying was the 14th Amendment is important, equal protection of the laws is important, and we have a right to it, and we want you to fix the 14th Amendment by adding the ERA to the constitution and guaranteeing women fully equal treatment in all aspects of life. Um, Well, it didn't go anywhere at all between 1923 and 1972. um, And along the way, there were attempts to get Congress to care to, you know, women would uh, mobilize to some extent politically and, um, and, and some things would happen like, you know, Congress might, vote on the bill and maybe they would lose by a few votes or they'd pass in the house but it wouldn't even go to the senate there were these little things that happened along the way but there was never enough political support for it to make it through both houses of congress until the civil rights movement during the civil rights movement which is when an awful lot of good and not so good things happened to women's um activism uh, Alice Paul, who stayed involved. Remember, Alice Paul was deeply involved in uh, suffrage too. She was the leader that fought for suffrage, and she was the take-no-prisoners, truly um, uh, incorruptible feminist leader that deserves far more credit than she ever gets. Who would have hunger strikes? Who would, you know, burn uh, the president in effigy, stand outside the White House, and and just. Embarrass the president on the world stage. She was fearless, she was brilliant. She was a PhD, she was so focused and committed and incorruptible. No one could give her money to go away and stop fighting for women's rights. There was no price. Even when she was incarcerated for protesting in front of the White House um, as one of the silent sentinels. And uh, she was in prison for a long time. Uh, and she went on a hunger strike uh, and they force fed her, which was horrific, horrific. Uh, She still didn't give in. When they finally let her out, they assumed she would have uh, no interest in fighting for for, uh, suffrage anymore because she had suffered so terribly in prison. Nope, she went right back to the White House. She you know, was probably skeletal by then, but she was the same. She said, no, there's nothing you can do to me that's gonna stop me from fighting. And it was really because she was such a, um, uh, you know, because she had no negotiation, she was not gonna negotiate away women's right to vote. She was not gonna make a deal. She was not gonna take half a loaf. Um, and because she was fearless and persistent and brilliant, and she was a brilliant strategist as well. And she really was the only one Willing to do these really radical things. I mean, she was direct protest. She was nonviolent, but she was direct action. She didn't want to get involved in the silliness that some of the women's groups were involved in make nice with all the lawmakers and, you know, go to political parties. She was not like that. And she was right. And what she did is actually what enabled uh, the 19th Amendment to become adopted. Um, without her, we, we probably still wouldn't have the right to vote, but she also knew that it wasn't good enough, that we had to have the ERA, so immediately, once she's done with suffrage, she moves on to the ERA, and she was still around in 1972 when it finally made its way to Congress. What she knows, however, and uh, what she knew at that time was really bothering her, and here's what, here's what uh, Alice Paul has, has said, and, you know, it's, it's in the records. It makes people nervous to hear this, and it's kind of... Um, hard even for me to to hear it, but what Alice Paul knew back then that we all need to know today is that one of the reasons the ERA did not succeed in becoming ratified by the states is because the National Organization for Women emerged in the 1960s. Um, The the National Organization for Women, when it first became an organization, uh, was something Alice Paul thought was good. She thought this was uh, a great way to create a kind of lobbying uh, power to bring women together, to, you know, really make a show of force on Washington and, and get the ERA done. She believed that that was their sincere goal. And she joined the National Organization for Women because she believed that this is what they were interested in. She learned very quickly because it was at their very first national conference that uh, the, now announced they do not support the ERA. And they were very blunt about it.
0: We didn't and why would they not support the ERA?
1: Um, well, one, one theory, I'm not sure if they were ever very sincere about explaining that. My own view is that they were pr- probably funded by anti-women's equality money to create the appearance of being committed to women's issues but they were never really committed. They were subversive and anti-feminist. I've always, and I mean, when I say I've always thought this about them, it's not that I think that about everyone involved in all the chapters, some of the state chapters are, are terrific, but as a national organization, they were, to, for them to come out in the sixties as openly hostile to the ERA. And then as Alice Paul said, they were then running around to the states, uh, quote unquote, causing trouble and, and what she meant by that is they were talking about what women care about and talking about anything except the ERA. They just wouldn't talk about, and they kept telling lawmakers, we're, we don't care about the ERA. We want to talk about this other less important law, whether it was about pregnancy discrimination or something else. they they she she Alice Paul said they were making trouble because they were making it confusing for lawmakers who were focused on the ERA. They were suddenly, being told that all these other less important things were really what women were interested in. And in that sense, um, Alice really fell out of uh, favor with them and vice versa. She stopped, she just stopped supporting them altogether and saw them as anti-ERA, subversive, anti-feminist and um, kept doing her own thing. Because again, she was still incorruptible. She was getting older. Now she's you know in her uh, late 70s. I, I forget exactly how old she was, but she was getting up there. And she was adamant that that ERA was going to become law before she passed away. Well, it did pass Congress while she was still alive, notwithstanding all that the National Organization for Women um, was doing to undermine it. But once it passed Congress, remember to make a new amendment, it it then has to be ratified by three fourths of the states. It went to the states and it started uh, uh, right away winning ratifications like wildfire. Um, I think 22 states in the first year ratified. So it was going gangbusters. And then um, among other things um, now, which was kind of shamed into seeming to be supportive of the ERA uh, was doing nothing once it passed Congress to get the states to ratify. And and, and Alice, now at this point,
0: are we still in the 1970s?
1: Yeah, this is set 1972. Yep, okay. right away. In 1972, it passes Congress, it goes to the states and 22 states ratified in 1972. Very quickly, we got to 22, we needed 38. So when you get to 22 right away in the same year, you feel like you're gonna make it. but um, the National Organization for Women really wasn't doing very much. And it was, there wasn't a lot of support for ratification. It was awkward, to put it mildly, how little was being done to support ratification in the states. Uh, and, and no one, and Alice didn't really understand that. Why is no one doing anything um, to get ratification done through through 38 states? Um, but she also knew, which I think is, um, also problematic, uh, that unlike the 19th Amendment, which when it passed Congress uh, had no deadline attached to it in terms of how long the states had to ratify, the ERA was stuck with a seven-year deadline. And Alice Paul, very famously, it is a well-known story, Alice Paul was at uh, Congress the day that, that it passed, the day the ERA passed, and she was seen sobbing the reason she was sobbing was not out of tears of joy. She was sobbing because she knew that with a t- seven-year deadline, uh, that w- it would be very easy to defeat ratification because now the anti-ERA money, all they had to do was spend a little bit of money to get a couple of the um, you know, states that were on the fence, if you will, uh, to go the other way, and she knew it would be defeated. She knew that with a deadline, it would never, ever, ever make it Past 38 states, because it took 50 years to get the 19th Amendment done. You know, why? Equality was a much bigger kettle of fish. And she knew that it was dead in the water. The minute Congress uh, voted out the ERA and sent it to the states for ratification, she knew it was dead. So, you know, the sad part there is Alice, that's how smart Alice was. Um, And then And then the history books reflect that not a lot of support was out there in the states to get the get to 38 states. So after 22, it was just dribs and drabs. And by the time the 1979 deadline was approaching, we only had 35 states. And uh, there was there was an extension of the deadline passed by Congress in 1978 that extended the 79 deadline to 1982, but no more states ratified. So we never got to 38 states within that extended deadline. And a lot of people wonder, a a lot of people blamed and and or credit Phyllis Schlafly for causing uh, support for the ERA to fail after we so quickly won 22 states, it was all Phyllis Schlafly's fault because she was pretty well known um, anti-ERA activist woman herself who had a very conservative view about women's lives and thought equality would be bad for women and they need to just stay home and cook and all this stuff. Um, And there were a lot of religious groups that supported her. Most of the history books credit Phyllis Schlafly for killing the ERA, but I don't credit her at all. I think she was just a prop uh, as I write in my paper, I think the reason the ERA uh, failed was because of two Supreme Court decisions that were intentionally decided for the purpose of killing the ERA. And what I say in my paper that a lot of people are going to uh, raise some eyebrows about, but it but it is what it is, uh, was that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was involved in both of those cases. And I all right, take- let's get into it. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> I take her to task in my paper for good reason, uh, and and here's here's where here's why it's a little complicated. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was at least superficially doing things that uh, were being framed and packaged as good for women. She was trying to win cases that would make good law for women. It's sort of what I do, you know. I'll file a case. Uh, rather than going to the legislature, I'll file a case that gives me an opportunity to use an issue in the case um, as a uh, focal point. And then I, 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 you know, get the lower court to rule against my client, which I like as an activist, I have to lose at the lower court in order to appeal and make law. Uh, So I like losing at the lower court in a certain way filing an appeal and then asking the appellate court to not only fix what the lower court did, but change the law for all sorts of reasons. And I do that that a fair amount. That's kind of what I've been doing in my activist litigator uh, side of things. So that's sort of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, was known as in terms of what kind of work she was doing for women, that she was filing these cases in order to make law in the appellate courts uh, that would be better law and, and it would be rooted in the constitution. Um, so you can change the law by going to the courts, especially if you're making constitutional arguments in some ways easier and better than you can if you go to the legislature and ask them to change the law. I almost never waste my time with the legislature because I'm looking to, um, I'm looking to establish women's, all of women's rights in the constitution. So why do I wanna to go to the legislature? You know, you can't fix the constitution by passing a statute. So, um, Uh, So Ruth Bader Ginsburg was doing those sorts of cases uh, in the early 70s, in 1971 and 1972, and even in the aftermath of 72, for several years, she was um, uh, involved directly or indirectly as an amicus uh, counsel in many cases involving women's equal rights uh, under the 14th Amendment. And... um, for people who know anything about the ERA, I, remember I said we didn't uh, we didn't get it done by the deadline. Well, there was a resurgence of interest in the ERA recently, which I won't talk about yet, except to say that we finally got um, 38 states to ratify in 2020. And of course, there were these concerns about whether it was actually ratified because of the deadline expiring back in 1982. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, was around still in early 2020. I filed a lawsuit in early 2020 when we made it to 38 states because I was trying to force the court to validate the ERA notwithstanding the deadline. Basically, my lawsuit said, please declare the ERA is valid because the deadline is not valid. And I had all these constitutional arguments about why that's so. Um, There was another lawsuit filed after mine in federal court in DC. Mine was in federal court in Massachusetts. And while those two cases were pending, Ruth Bader Ginsburg went to Georgetown University uh, and and gave a speech, as she often did. You know, she would go talk to the kids at at, at law schools around the country. And a question was put to her that I'm sure was planted about the ERA. Uh, And she knew these two lawsuits were then pending. And she said to that audience, which of course became overnight news on every news channel, she said, uh, the ERA is not valid. Uh, women have to start over. And I almost had a heart failure because here I'm litigating a case thinking, we get it to the Supreme Court, boy, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's going to be on our side because she says she cares about the ERA. She's on our side, blah, 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 blah. When she said that, it wasn't the first time she said something that bothered me about the ERA. So I had my own concerns about not so much what she was saying, but what she wasn't saying about the ERA. And here she comes out after my lawsuit is filed and I'm asking the court to declare the ERA valid so we don't have to start over. Uh, And I had perfectly valid arguments. You know, Reasonable people disagree about the validity of the deadline, but uh, you would think that someone who supports the ERA would support my view, right? Because there were scholars on both sides. And here I thought she's gonna support the ERA no matter what. And and yet she says no. Women have to start over. The area isn't valid. I was so distraught. I mean, I can't tell you how distraught I was. But but rather than uh, you know do I, I didn't waste my time criticizing her because you know it was what it was. She said what she said. What it caused me to do. And again, it wasn't the first time she said something that bothered me as an academic. Uh, So what it made me do was go back and carefully read her work that I had only ever understood deeply from other people's writing about her work. I had read law review articles or I had read, um, uh, you know, cases where she was involved, but never with the kind of critical eye that I now had. Now I wanted to go back and really take a careful look analytically at the cases that she filed around the time that the ERA was was being passed by Congress. And here's what I found out. So, um, And remember I said that Phyllis Schlafly had nothing to do with killing the ERA. It was the United States Supreme Court. They killed the ERA in two decisions in 1973. And I'll tell you about those two decisions in a minute, but what I want you to know is that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was involved in the cases that I'm about to tell you about. And she was involved in a way that once I went back and really analyzed what she did, um, she. what I can tell you is that uh, her work contributed to uh, not only why the ERA failed, but to the court's uh, reluctance to grant women full equality through court decision.
0: In our next episode, Wendy will tell us more about the status of the ERA, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and who is holding up women from enjoying full constitutional You will also learn what you can do to help. We are Educate, Caring Activist Teachers for Equity. Educate would like to thank the following for their support of this broadcast. The University of Illinois at Springfield, UIS. The College of Education and Human Services at UIS. The Department of Teacher Education at UIS. The Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at UIS. And a very special thanks goes to our sound editor and designer, Emily Bowles, Online Learning and Faculty Development Specialist at COLORS, Center for Online Learning, Research, and Service at UIS. I'm Jennifer Martin. Remember, always err on the side of awesome.